Do you affirm that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Good afternoon, Dr. Davidson. Before we get into your examination proper, could you kindly provide the Commission with an overview of your education, training, and experience? Um, my name is Dion Davidson. I'm a, in summary, I'm a vascular surgeon and critical care doctor. Um, I uh, went to medical school in Saskatchewan. I went on to do uh, eight years of general surgery and vascular surgery training uh, after that. My family and I moved to uh, Nova Scotia here to a r relatively smaller town in uh, 2005 uh, with a relatively larger hospital, so a regional hospital that had a vascular surgery uh, program. Um, and I've practiced in Nova Scotia uh, ever since, basically as a community vascular surgeon and ICU doctor. And for the benefit of our audience, what is vascular surgery? Uh, vascular surgery is the, um, the, the surgical procedures, uh, but also a lot of medical management and, and other aspects of uh, diseases that have to do with arteries and veins, for, to, to put it simply. And do you have any other areas of interest uh, with respect to your involvement in medicine beyond what you've just described? Uh, as I said, I'm, uh, I am or I have for most of my career been an ICU doctor as well. So uh, for most of my career, I was served as one of the attending doctors in the, uh, in the ICU at our regional hospital. So I have an interest in critical care. Uh, I've worked in, in that area as well. Um, in addition to uh, sort of community vascular surgery, the, what we do as vascular surgeons, we do a lot of... Uh, uh, surgeries on uh, carotid arteries in the neck uh, in order to prevent strokes. We do a lot of surgeries uh, and, pr and various procedures for arteries in the, uh, in the legs to relieve pain and prevent amputations. Um, and we repair abdominal aneurysms and other types of aneurysms to prevent rupture and, and death. So that's kind of the, the core, I would say, of, of a community vascular surgery practice. So all vascular surgeons do a lot of that. Um, in, in my case, I've also taken a, a special interest in, in what's called chronic venous disease, which is a bit of a different, uh, a different offshoot, kind of a less dramatic offshoot of all that. Um, not life or limb threatening, but certainly very common and, uh, and kind of underserved in the medical community. Um, so those have been my areas of interest. That's what's taken up a, a lot of my career. I've uh, contributed to... Uh, 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 Two different national committees developing guidelines for carotid artery surgery to prevent stroke and uh, and with respect to chronic venous disease as well. Oh, this is my assumption, but I, I want to get this on the record. As a layperson, when you tell me that you're a vascular surgeon, uh, my presumption is that perhaps there may not be a great many vascular surgeons practicing in the province of Nova Scotia. Now, are you able to tell us? how many vascular surgeons were practicing at the start of the pandemic in early 2020, including yourself? It would have been, it's maybe not quite as simple to answer as you might think, but I, I'll say that at the beginning of the pandemic, there would have been five to six full-time vascular surgeons, maybe four to five full-time vascular surgeons. Um, you know, for, for example, uh, my, my partner in the Annapolis Valley um, is also a general surgeon, so he maybe wouldn't be termed a full-time vascular surgeon, and there was some of the same sort of thing happening in Halifax. So it would be a number, something like that. And that would be to cover vascular surgery for Nova Scotia and PEI. In your practice, how many patients could you expect to treat in the run of a week? Again, not super easy to answer, but uh, I'll say... In terms of new consults and follow-ups in a given week, maybe 50 to 80, something like that, and then maybe another 10 patients uh, I would provide minor surgeries for, such as wound debridements for um, 
while wound debridements it would be an example, um, some uh, some minor office procedures, and um, and then maybe anywhere from one to five bigger surgeries per week that might be sort of planned surgeries during the day, and then maybe more urgent surgeries at uh, during the kind of evening or night nighttime. And do you have any experience as an educator? Um, yes, uh, I would say I spent I've spent a lot of time in education of uh, nurses, medical students, uh, general surgery residents, family medicine residents as well in terms of lectures, and then just um, you know for their uh, for their electives, um, you know, accompanying me in clinic and in the operating room, and kind of how we do as doctors is teach as you as you interact as you're working. Okay. Now, at the beginning of the pandemic, let's say early 2020, what had been your plan for both yourself and your family uh, with respect to your professional future in Nova Scotia? Yeah, before the pandemic, we were, uh, we were dug in. We, we had been there for, six, no, I guess about 15 years at that point, um, my wife and I, and we had raised our three daughters there. Um, I was a really um, hard-working vascular surgeon. Uh, you know, my career and my profession took up, uh, uh, obviously, most of my life. And uh, my, my wife uh, became a prominent uh, community leader and, and businesswoman, um, including helping the Nova Scotia Health with um, efforts such as recruiting doctors into the community and things like that, uh, a lot of other volunteer-type type work. Um, two of my daughters still uh, live in, or were still in the Annapolis Valley at that time. So the, before the pandemic, we had no plans to ever go anywhere. We were dug into Nova Scotia, specifically the Annapolis Valley. Our plan was to stay there forever. Okay, and we'll get into your experience throughout the pandemic in a moment. But I just want to bring us up to the present and ask you, Dr. Davidson, what are your plans professionally for yourself and your plans for your family? Currently, well, I've, re I've resigned my position, um, kind of at the tail end now of a, <laughs> a long and awkward process of resigning. But uh, um, and uh, my wife and our youngest daughter and I are are moving out of Nova Scotia. Why is that, Doctor Davidson? We're moving because, I mean, to put it simply. Um, we're moving because of the of the public health response to the COVID pandemic. We'll come back to that. Now, can you speak to any experience or qualifications you have with respect to the review and interpretation of medical research literature? Yeah, um, I'm not I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'm a doctor, and you know, the, a major aspect of medical school education is. The concept of evidence-based medicine, um, we're we're taught uh, quite extensively from a very early point um, how to interpret scientific papers. Uh, we're taught about research methods and biostatistics, um, so that we can, throughout our careers, be able to look at the scientific literature and know. Uh, what to look for in terms of uh, quality of scientific literature, what it's trying to say, what it's actually saying, what data means. Um, so that's a, a, a major component of, of medical school education and, and almost every doctor almost every day has to do some, to some extent, has to um, assess the medical literature and interpret it. Um, in addition, I took uh, uh, some additional biostatistics bio classes uh, during my surgical training. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe no more than any other specialist, but uh, it's certainly it's certainly part of, of what we normally do as doctors is is uh, review scientific literature. Do you have any specific education or training with respect to medical ethics? It'd be the same answer, I, I guess. The short answer is not in, not in addition to what we what we are taught as doctors from a very early point before we're doctors, the, the very early point in medical school and all through medical school, uh, principles of medical ethics are, uh, are, are strongly emphasized. And I mean, not only that, but, but they come up every day and with every patient to, cert, to a certain extent. 
So my, you know, I'm not, I'm, I also don't have a PhD in philosophy, but I would say that that uh, you know I'm I'm very knowledgeable about the the basic premises of medical ethics. Can you talk about the concept of informed consent as it applies to the practice of medicine? Yeah, informed consent is a major cornerstone of, of medical ethics, and um, it's you know. I don't know, maybe it's more obvious to some than others, but um, obviously it, it is a principle that we never, as doctors, ever, ever force a medical intervention on someone. Um, history is replete with examples of times where doctors have done that. And, um, you know, that... that those, those very sad episodes in history are sort of in the background as we talk about consent. Um, consent needs to be uh, free, free of coercion, and informed in order to mean anything. And does that principle apply to all medical interventions in Canada? Does it apply? I mean, historically it would have applied, I would say. And I, you know, one would think and I think we all would have said before the pandemic that the threshold for even considering countervening the ethic of informed consent should be extremely high. As we entered the pandemic in early 2020, what was your understanding of the danger posed to public health in this province by COVID-19? Well, I was I was as concerned as anybody else about COVID nineteen. I mean, similar to Dr. Lavranis Lavranis's testimony, you know, in in early two thousand twenty, nobody knew much of anything about this virus, and, except that it was really serious and uh, and that it could be a catastrophe. So I was very concerned about it. I took it very seriously. Um, I. Um, you know, started to work with other doctors in our hospital. Again, a lot of this will, will sound familiar from Eris' testimony, but uh, in um, uh, trying to learn as much as we could about it with the limited information that, that we had at the time, and then trying to prepare for these waves of critically ill COVID patients that surely were going to be coming to our door. So that took up, uh, that concern and, and fear took up and, and, and trying to prepare, um, you know, many months going into the, through the summer for sure. Okay, I'm going to touch on something you just said, uh, or perhaps we can expand on it. So you indicated that you're very concerned, like many people were during the early stages of the pandemic. What was your observation during the early stages of the pandemic regarding the allocation of in-hospital resources? Well, we, I think we all, again, we were all very concerned. We didn't have much data, but we were concerned enough early on that we all agreed that we needed to be ready and uh, that it was probably appropriate to slow the hospital down as much as possible. So one thing that was certainly very prominent in our hospital, which has a relatively big surgery department, is that elective surgeries were, um, were halted for months. Um, so elective means you know, surgeries that aren't urgent um, were just deferred, put on hold, not done. Now, when you say surgeries that were not urgent, is that the same as surgeries that were not important, or are those two different things? Yeah, certainly two different things, yeah. So could an elective surgery still be an important surgery? Oh, for sure, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, no surgeon should be doing any surgery they don't, they don't think is an important surgery to do. Okay. So you've discussed the allocation of in-hospital resources. Shift gears a little bit. What were your observations in hospital with respect to COVID-related illness during the initial stages of the pandemic? Yeah, again, and, uh, you know, similar to, to uh, what Eris was saying, um, we were geared up and spun up. We um, were getting ready. Uh, I was part of sort of teams of, of uh, people that where we were trying to develop these protocols about how we would safely intubate patients in respiratory distress and safely get them to the ICU, um, uh, including the possibility of emergency surgical airways if, if that was going to be needed. 
Um, and uh, really, certainly in the early months, there was very little um, of that. Uh, very few, num very small numbers of critically ill COVID patients at first. Um, it's hard for me to kind of remember the exact timeline, but certainly for the first several months, there was a lot more sort of preparing than there was actually looking after critically ill COVID patients. And, uh, and I think you, you just referenced critically ill COVID patients. How about during the initial months of the pandemic, COVID admissions generally? I wouldn't have been involved. Um, I would only be involved um, if they were ICU patients. Okay. So there probably were some. My, my impression was that, again, for several months, it wasn't nearly the numbers that we feared that it would be, uh, even the, the, the less sick. Okay. So you had spoken earlier about your, your significant apprehensions at the front end of the pandemic. Did your level of apprehension or your areas of concern evolve over time? And if so, how and why did they evolve? Well, certainly. I mean, as you know, with many other people, as, as the spring turned into the fall, we had more data. And it became evident pretty quickly that, um, uh, that the, again, the, the virus was serious, and um, it could be very serious for certain people, but we were getting a very clear picture of who was most at risk. And as we've heard, age was the major factor for that. Um, comorbidities such as obesity and diabetes played a role as well, but age was certainly the major, the major risk factor. And I, I feel like that was becoming very clear, certainly as 2020 turned into 2021. So, so I was becoming, I guess, less, less concerned that the virus was going to be a world catastrophe, um, still taking it seriously, but, but, uh, but less concerned about that. And um, where, where you're talking about age being a, a significant factor, is that the idea that Dr. Milburn and Dr. Lavranos described as age stratification of risk as it relates to COVID-19? Is that the concept? Yes, exactly. Yeah, this, this uh, you know, the concept that if you're a healthy child, I mean, there's no such thing as zero in medicine, but if you're a healthy child, your risk of, of a bad outcome from COVID approaches zero. If you're 80 years old, you're at much higher risk, like a thousandfold risk. Okay. Uh, what's your understanding of the risk for uh, a healthy adult, somebody who wouldn't be medically classified as elderly, if that's an appropriate classification? Uh, again, I mean, by now, there's very good data, even, even on a decade-by-decade by, by decade basis. Um, it, it's, it'd be hard for me to give you a number, but, uh, you know, for the average healthy 40-year-old, you know, you're still you know, your, your case fatality, certainly your infection fatality uh, number is, is low, uh, less than 1%. Is that 1% uh, relative to infections or 1% uh, relative to the population? Infection, certainly IFR, infection fatality rate, um, even the case fatality rate was probably be about that. I don't want to overstate it. but Sure. Okay, so I believe that you said a few moments ago that uh, the risk posed to children is, is close to zero. Did I hear you correctly? Yep. Okay. In light of that, uh, that, that perspective, what was your sense of locking down schools or locking down society generally? Well, yeah, that was, that was my first major crisis moment, I, I would say. So um, like everybody else or most people, I understood and probably even supported the idea of two weeks to flatten the curve. Um, but even then, and certainly as that became two months to flatten the curve and, and extended longer, I was increasingly distressed about the idea of wide society lockdowns. And um, for all the reasons that I'm sure, even at that time, let alone now, would be obvious to everybody in this room, and, and it boggled my mind why uh, public health wasn't discussing the, the potential dangers, not potential dangers, the dangers of wide society lockdowns uh, in terms of rationalizing why they were, why they were uh, recommending that. Um, you know, the, the, the downsides are obvious. And, you know, again, Eris talked about this, you've heard it before, but the, the missed cancer screening, the missed cancer diagnoses, the, 
the patients uh, staying at home and not seeing their family doctor to manage their diabetes and their blood pressure, all of the strict health downsides should have been obvious. And then the society downsides, patient, um, you know, children not going to school, not getting the development that they get from going to school. Um, you know, people, uh, older people dying uh, alone and away from their loved ones. Um, again, it was obvious to me, and I have no special insight into this sort of thing. I know it was obvious to many people why it wasn't being publicly discussed. Um, it was, it was, was very distressing to me. And why month after month it was decided that this one virus, which was, was now just one more way among a thousand other ways that we could die in life, why that one virus was, was the only thing that public health was concerned with. Um, I just didn't understand that at all, and it really distressed me. In your professional medical opinion, was there any medical or scientific evidence that you were aware of during that time that, that suggested that these ongoing lockdowns uh, should have been or remained implemented? Not on an ongoing basis. Um, you know, again, we were getting more and more data about who was at risk and who wasn't. Um, the, uh, the downsides of lockdowns, if they weren't obvious before, I think were becoming more evident. Uh, so certainly not on an ongoing basis. There were, um, you know, preeminent, very prominent PhD epidemiologists from Harvard, Oxford, Stanford, who took a step to organize and uh, gather other preeminent uh, PhDs and, and other researchers and scientists from around the world to suggest that uh, wide society lockdowns were a bad idea. And, and they based this on very older, uh, very old uh, planning that uh, before COVID, um, somewhat further back in time, the approach to pandemics, it, it had been agreed, would be focused protection of those uh, at most risk. It was only with COVID that was actually a, a, this new idea that you had to shut down the entire society because of this one virus. Um, and, uh, and their ideas were, made a lot of sense to me. I didn't understand why they were being demonized in, in, in the public and in, uh, you know, among this new public health establishment and in the media. Um, and then as time wore on, we, we had glimpses into what other jurisdictions were doing. Countries like Sweden, states like Florida and Texas were not widely shutting down or, or uh, you know, they were undertaking more humane versions of that, again, more focused and shorter lockdowns. And, uh, and their age-adjusted mortalities were no worse. In some cases, they were better than areas like New York or California that were, um, or Nova Scotia, uh, <laughs> at least later on, that were, um, that were undertaking these draconian lockdowns. Were you aware uh, of any debate or discussion happening within either, either in hospital, amongst your colleagues uh, and, and uh, leadership, or in the public health sphere in Nova Scotia uh, reg regarding whether these ongoing lockdowns were appropriate? Was it, was it a matter of discussion and debate that you were aware of? Not, well, as I said, I was actually very disappointed that it wasn't a matter of public debate, and it wasn't even anything that public health was bringing up. Um, which I would have thought would have been public health's job. Um, so certainly not at that level. In terms of otherwise, I mean, other than me just grumbling and complaining and others sort of agreeing, you know, my colleagues around me sort of agreeing that there would be downsides, um, there really wasn't a lot of this discussion about it. Not nearly enough, in my opinion. Okay. So as, as time wore on, <laughs> you've just discussed uh, your views on the lockdowns. As time wore on, did, did your concerns uh, begin to evolve, or, or, or did you have other concerns? Um, well, I had other concerns. I, you know, elective surgeries don't apply so much to vascular surgery. A lot of what we do is, uh, is more, well, is life or limb threatening more immediately, if not emergently. So, um, you know, I was still operating. I still had my practice was, was continuing. Um, and then in addition to all that, I was trying to help prepare and, and trying to learn more about COVID. So I was very busy. 
Um, I, I carried on. I, I hoped that public health knew what they were doing in terms of the, of the lockdowns, but um, as time went on, I was just more and more suspicious of that. Um, and I'm not sure if this is if that answers your question or not, but, but well, that's how that evolved. Absolutely. Um, how about, uh, based on your education, training, and experience, and your understanding of clinical literature, uh, did, how did you feel about uh, the vaccine rollout and or the implementation of vaccine mandates? Yeah, that was, that, so that was the next point of concern for me. So when the, the vaccine... Uh, the vaccines were, were being developed. Um, well, one, uh, you know, I remember being somewhat concerned at the speed at which it was happening. As you've heard, it would normally take multiple years, five years, 10 years minimum to get a vaccine to the, to the point of new pathogen to public rollout. Um, you know, the, the Donald Trump's administration um, authorized the Operation Warp Speed so that, and the whole idea of that was that there weren't going to be these normal regulatory processes. They were going to cut the red tape so that these vaccines could could be developed more quickly, um, which is great if everything goes well, but that means by definition you don't have the long-term data, especially in terms of safety. So I had some concern about that. The randomized trials came out, and uh, to be honest, again, I, I I was busy. I scanned them. I didn't read them. In retrospect, I did not read them critically enough, but they seem to be saying good things about the mRNA vaccines. And, uh, and then public health, obviously, was all in. They were immediately safe and effective. It was, um, it was amazing the confidence with which they could tell us that these were, these were safe and effective vaccines based on two randomized trials and a couple of months of, of, uh, of data. But again, I was busy, and I, I was naive. I, sh I should have questioned things more at that time, but I assumed, I hoped, that the powers that be knew what they were doing in terms of pushing these vaccines. So I, I myself, I got vaccinated. I got the two primary um, uh, vaccinations, mRNA vaccinations, in early um, 2021. Yeah. Just going to ask you one question about what you said. You talked about cutting the red tape and pushing the vaccines out. Uh, and, and you mentioned two months of, of data, trial data. Uh, with your experience as a physician and a surgeon, and you also indicated, I should have read the studies more carefully. Uh, based on your experience and where we are today, do you believe that that was a responsible statement, a medically responsible statement or a socially responsible statement to characterize those interventions as safe and effective? No, I don't think. I, th I think that's an irresponsible way to, um, to describe almost any medical intervention, let alone a brand new technology that had been studied in two randomized trials with a couple of months of data. Um, we, never, we never talk about medical interventions like that. I never sit down with a patient who um, has a, a problem, and I have a surgery that maybe could fix that problem. I hope it would. I, I, think it, I, I think it will. I never just sit down with them or stand up with them and say, this is safe and effective, do it. That, that's never how we talk about things as doctors, ever. You talk to the patient about what's happening with them, what their options are, what, and maybe even I give a recommendation um, but I also talk to them about their, uh, the, the risks of what I'm proposing and, and the potential benefits. And it's always, always up to the patient. And if the patient decides against what I'm recommending, you stick with them and you try something else. You, ne you never just say, this is safe and effective. Do this. Take this. It's never how we talk about medical interventions. Well, I, and thank you for that, doctor. Uh, a logical corollary to what you've just said is, or, or uh, the next logical question then, given what you've just expressed to the commission, how did you feel about the mandates themselves when the vaccines actually became mandated in this yeah. province? Well, so that, that was the next, the next issue. Um, it's one thing to heavily promote uh, a medical intervention like that to the public. Um, and, you know, there's arguments to be made, certainly, that that, that that shouldn't have happened, to then 
force people to take that intervention is a whole new level. And, um, and I couldn't, I really couldn't comprehend that the discussion was even being undertaken. By then, we had even more data about what was happening with the virus. And, and it was serious. The virus was serious. I'm not a COVID denier. I looked, I eventually later on helped look after extremely sick patients in the ICU who had COVID. Um, and uh, so I, I don't deny that for a relatively small number of people, uh, it is a very serious disease and it can cause death. There was no doubt about that. But again, by then we had much more data about who was at risk and who wasn't. Um, we had much more data about the magnitude of, of mortality that, that uh, COVID was bringing us. Um, and even at that point that mandates were being discussed, we were starting to get data about how the vaccines did little or nothing to reduce transmission of the disease. So as Eris was saying earlier, in order to even contemplate a mandate where you're forcing someone to take a medical intervention on pain of losing their job or their uh, being able to participate in society as they normally would, in order to even think about that, it would have to be an infectious disease situation where the, uh, the pathogen is so serious and the intervention is so safe and so effective that you can then contravene this, this extremely important ethic of informed and free consent. So at that point, it did not seem that any of those criteria were being met. Um, the, the data was becoming more clear to the extent that it was being admitted on American national television by the CDC and Anthony Fauci that the vaccines were, first of all, losing their effectiveness, even in contracting COVID fairly early, within four or five months. We all saw the 95% effective go down to 50% effective over the next few months. But, but more importantly, they were admitting that they did little or nothing to reduce uh, transmission of the virus. And so then, in my mind, and I challenge anybody to tell me how this cannot be, the, the whole argument for even considering forcing vaccination on someone is null and void. Changing topics here a little bit, Doctor. Uh, as the vaccines were rolled out, and as we got into a vaccine mandate situation here in Nova Scotia, did you have any direct or indirect experience with adverse events in your medical practice with respect to the COVID-19 vaccinations? Yes, I did. Um, and, you know, just to clarify, the term is not adverse event due to vaccination. Okay. The term is adverse event following vaccination or following immunization. And the whole point there is that it's extremely difficult to prove that any adverse event is because of a vaccination. But that's part of the point of encouraging, or what we sh should have been doing, is encouraging people to report adverse events happening after. And there was not the sort of burden of proof for um, uh, healthcare professionals, for example, nurses or doctors, to know that an adverse event was because of the vaccination. We're, we were supposed to, we are supposed to be um, reporting adverse events whether we think they have any relationship or whether we can sort of explain any relationship or not. Um, but uh, but I, I certainly had first-hand experience of, uh, of at least, I have to be careful about patient personal health information, but um, life-threatening and many more uh, cases of more minor uh, thrombotic events shortly after vaccination. Um, and uh, when, I, when I first saw those, that was my first introduction into the, uh, into the online adverse events reporting system that, uh, that you heard about. I must say, I think Eris left, but you must be many orders of magnitude smarter than me because if it, I don't know how you could get through one of those reports in five minutes. I mean, it took me 45 minutes. Um, it, it took me 10 minutes just to figure out the links on the, on the website to try to get to the five-page PDF that you'd have to fill out. Um, it was, I, found it, I found it, and I spoke to many other people that agreed with me, a very cumbersome, very awkward process to uh, report an adverse event occurring after a vaccination. Would it, would it be your opinion that 
the way that the reporting system was set up that it, it could potentially impair uh, the reporting of adverse events or otherwise inhibit the reporting of adverse events? Yes. And in addition to that, um, is the whole, the whole issue of uh, communication with us as healthcare professionals. We were relentlessly bombarded with uh, how great the vaccines were, that they were safe and effective, safe and effective a thousand times a day, this oversimplification of this new medical intervention. Um, and uh, and, and um, informed by our various regulatory bodies, the College of Physicians and Surgeons in my case, that if we did not uh, publicly voice uh, support or if we publicly voiced anything other than support of public health's um, statements about that, that we uh, would be disciplined or that we would face uh, disciplinary measures. So not only is the, the mechanics of reporting the adverse event very cumbersome and time consuming, the overall messaging, I can tell you, was not be sure to look out for these adverse events. I think I saw one email uh, during those years. And again, that was after the newspaper article that you, that you heard about, um, that, uh, that it sort of felt like public health was forced to say something about this adverse events reporting system. Um, so every day, relentless, vaccines are safe and effective. Maybe one message about reporting adverse events. I'm going to ask you this in a general way, Dr. Davidson. Is it your opinion that the messaging that you just described had a dissuasive effect on the reporting of adverse events? I don't know how it couldn't have. And I'm going to back up just a little bit. You had mentioned thrombotic events. <laughs> For those of us who aren't physicians, what is a thrombotic event? And, and just so everyone can remember, Dr. Davidson, uh, I believe your evidence was you observed an increase in thrombotic events as an adverse event post-vaccination. Is that correct? That's correct. And what is a thrombotic event? Uh, simply put, it's uh, blood clots forming in, in, uh, in blood vessels. In my case, um, you know, I saw a couple in arteries, but more so in veins. So much so that I, it, it did lead me to change my practice, uh, my office practice, where I provide uh, relatively minor um, venous procedures uh, to uh, advising patients about more anticoagulation or, or medications that would reduce their risk of clots in the superficial veins and the deep veins, which could potentially be life-threatening. Did you prescribe interventions uh, in connection with... Uh with adverse events post-vaccination? Um, not, not specifically procedures for those clots. You don't really do procedures in okay. the midst of an acute clot, but just the, uh, the, the additional blood thinners, anticoagulants okay. to prevent. So prescriptions. Yeah. Okay. And I've just been uh, told that we're nearing the conclusion of our time, so I'll try to uh, get through the rest of this quickly. But as a physician and surgeon, with I believe, uh, based on what you had said, uh, that you came to the, I think you came into the province in 2005. Uh, by my counting, that would give you approximately 18 years experience as a physician and surgeon in Nova Scotia, correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. So as a physician and surgeon with 18 years experience practicing in Nova Scotia specifically, is it your opinion that the implementation of vaccine mandates was a necessary public safety measure? Vaccine mandates were an unnecessary public safety measure. Okay. And similarly, was it your opinion, or is it your opinion, that the implementation of vaccine mandates was a reasonable public safety measure? No, they were not a reasonable public safety measure. Final question, Dr. Davidson. You indicated that based on your experience, you were leaving the practice of medicine in Nova Scotia. You shared with us uh, what I believe any layperson would believe is a fairly impressive history and list of credentials. What I'd like to ask you, sir, is what does your departure from medicine mean for Nova Scotians? 
It's a difficult question to answer. I mean, certainly, you know, it would be true to say that I, I have been a hardworking community vascular surgeon. I do a lot of call coverage, or did before I was in the process of resigning. I uh, do a lot of call coverage in terms of frequency of call coverage, um, uh, covering the western zone of Nova Scotia for general uh, vascular surgical sort of uh, concerns and urgencies and emergencies. Um, as I said, I was one of the attendings in the ICU. Um, so I had very busy practice. Uh, I was a real hard worker, uh, for sure. And, uh, and so, you know, when someone like that resigns, it certainly leaves at least somewhat of a hole. And, uh, you know, in my case specifically, um, so it, it means that the remaining vascular surgeons, first of all, until they can find a replacement, um, will be working harder. Uh, there is a shortage of vascular surgeons around the world and across Canada, and it, I don't know how long it will take to recruit another vascular surgeon. Um, patients will wait longer. Um, I think in particular some um, areas that uh, unfortunately are chronically underserved, like um, uh, diabetic foot infections uh, and some of the aspects of chronic venous disease that I was talking about that I, I, I sort of spent more time on. Uh, those patients, I think, are really are, are going to be quite ill-served until uh, and, and whether um, that gap is filled. Um, yeah. All right. Those are my questions, sir. I will turn you over to the commission. Thank you. Thank you very much for your testimony. I have a question. I realize that uh, you're very busy, so you didn't have the time maybe to do the critical analysis of the literature, so you decided to take on the vaccine. Was it because you were influenced by the environment, or was it something that you wanted to do initially because you wanted maybe to protect vulnerable patients in a hospital? I'd, I'd say a little, a little of both. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, again, I just sort of trusted what my bosses and elders were telling me, right? It, I mean, ostensibly, mm -hmm. public health should know more about all this stuff than I do. And uh, even though some of it didn't make sense at various junctures, uh, at times I just sort of, it's much easier just to accept what you're being told and do what you're told uh, rather than, than, you know, do your own research, do your own reading. Um, so we were told the vaccines were safe and effective and we should get them, so I just got them at that time. Yeah. Not since. <laughs> and did you did you encourage people in your family to also get vaccinated? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. Um, you know, certainly, I, I uh, I'm just trying to think back to that time period. I didn't necessarily encourage my wife to get vaccinated. I left it up to her. Um, and uh, I I think I might have encouraged my parents. Mm -hmm. um, to at least consider it. I would never, I don't remember ever being, you know, so, um, uh, I was never aggressive about it, but I think I may have encouraged my parents to consider it at the time. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, just a few questions. You spoke a little bit about the cumbersome reporting process uh, for adverse events, and I'm just wondering if you have any uh, thoughts or recommendations on how that process could be improved upon? Yeah, I mean, not specifically. Um, along with all the other things, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, IT specialist, but it uh, seems to me it would be quite simple to make the process, that the mechanics of that process a lot more straightforward, first of all, in terms of here's what you click on, here's a few boxes to click, um, now you can scan a QR code. I mean, surely, th you know, things like that could be brought brought uh, into play. But even more importantly, again, more importantly than that, I would say, would be the overall messaging, that this is our responsibility um, as healthcare workers to look out for these adverse events. We don't have to prove that they're because of the vaccination. The whole point is that this is a screening system. Um, and that, and along with every email that said that the vaccines are safe and effective should have been a line right underneath saying, and by the way, it's your responsibility to look out for adverse events and report those as well. So those would be two, I think, fairly simple recommendations moving forward. 
So would that include uh, maybe part of the education um, and training that doctors receive? Yeah, I suppose, but I mean, it wouldn't take much education and training. It's like one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and one other question. Uh, you mentioned that you have resigned and that you're leaving Nova Scotia. I'm just wondering if there is something now that Nova Scotia could do that would prevent you from leaving. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess a complete turnaround of public health and its uh, sort of attitude toward toward the public and, you know, some overtures that, that uh, they're going to seek to be Know, more holistic and 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 uh, humanistic about their approach to to things like this. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm pretty far down the road of leaving, but you never know. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you. I have a couple of questions, Doctor. Thank you for your your testimony. First question was: um, Do you know of any other professionals? currently leaving the province of Nova Scotia for these types of reasons? Um, it's, a, it's a very good question. I, 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 at least a couple have left. Um, but also, I know of dozens that have, um, you know, I heard the term quiet quit recently, so I know of dozens of doctors and nurses who have uh, uh, taken leaves of absences, have... Uh, uh, down downsize their practice so that they're uh, and you know some of these are people that are um, that were uh, basically fired for not getting vaccinated and even now two years later even now we have all this data about how that that the vaccines don't reduce transmission even to this day you can't work as a healthcare worker in Nova Scotia Health unless you got those two vaccines two years ago. So I know of sorry, just to, I, so I know of dozens of nurses and doctors who uh, aren't working because of that. Uh, a few that actually even got vaccinated, but just like me, just got sick of things, and so they've retired early, um, are in the process of moving away. So I guess the short answer is yes. I know of others. Yeah. Um, this question might seem odd. Um, how much did you know about mRNA technology prior to you taking the vax yourself? Not much at all. Um, you know, as I said, scanned the RCTs that were done at that time, and then, you know, maybe a, a quick internet search here and there about what this technology was, and and that was about it. But you, were you aware of it being a novel technology to be used on on um, on the population? Well, mRNA technology, the, the technology, the idea is not new per se. I mean, it was, I don't know if it was 10 years ago or whatever that it was sort of came about and it's been used in very limited ways over those years. So it wasn't new to, in that way. But um, I was aware that it was, this was obviously the biggest application that had been made uh, of mRNA technology. And in that sense, it was new. It's just... Um the reason I ask that question is because you're right, as I understand from previous testimony, the mRNA technology has been around for quite some time, but this, as I understand, was the first time it was introduced in mass to the human population. Yeah, that was my understanding as well. Yeah, and considering that, in that it had never been done before, um, you, you would have thought that there would not just be the standard review process in place, but it would be an additional process. One would have thought. Mm. I, you know, I, I have another question that's a very short one, but it's, in, and I'm, I can't imagine you can a answer this, but my question to you is why? Why did this happen? Why did we, we you know, and I, I, I think you were here earlier and listening to the testimony, but we heard from Dr. Braden about the uh, this is my words, not hers, the breakdown in the process from conceptual science to production of product to putting it in arms, and there seemed to be a breakdown in the entire system from top to bottom. Even, even after it went into arms, the, the uh, reporting of adverse reactions or even the reporting of uh, efficacy seemed to all break down on this. Yeah. Um, 
How did that happen? How did that happen? <laughs> why or why did it happen? Perhaps those are two different questions. The, from what I understand, there was somewhat of a new public health elite that emerged early in the pandemic, and they became obsessed with this one virus with some good reason. It was it was bad. To the negation of literally every other public health concern. And then it became political, and then it became tribal. So that you were either on team, coronavirus is going to kill us all, and everything and anything that we need to do to stop it, or that could even possibly stop it, is justified, or you're on team critical of all that. And, uh, and I think just m many public health officials chose their team, many doctors chose their team, and they just stuck with it no matter what the data said. Um, and that carried through the, the entire uh, pandemic. Um, people chose their team, they chose their tribe, and they just stuck to their guns no matter what else came up. Thank you. Sorry, I just have one more question that I forgot to ask you. Um, how long did you train to become a vascular surgeon? Uh, so medical school for me was four years. Uh, it's for most people four years. And, um, and then I uh, trained in general surgery first and then vascular surgery. That was a total of eight years after that. Yeah. So 12 years? My, uh, from my math okay there? beginning of medical school till the end of my surgical training was, was 12 years. And I did you know, four years of university before medical school, so 16, a lot of years. <laughs> and, and did I hear you correctly say that there's a, not really a shortage of vascular surgeons, but that you are in short supply? Yeah, there's a shortage of vascular surgeons. I mean, there's a shortage of any number of specialties around the okay. world and doctors in general, right? But certainly, specifically vascular surgery, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Davison. <laughs>